We are on uh, week six of a seven-part um, series on the book of Revelation and the seven churches that um, Jesus talks to. So as we get started, uh, let's pray together uh, that God would speak to each one of us. And so, Jesus, we are thankful that we get to come together and learn, listen, worship you. And we pray that as we are uh, gathered today, God, that you would speak to each one of us. Um, your word would be the thing that, that, that speaks to our souls. God, no one needs to hear from Ben or for a person, but God, I just pray that your word would be declared clearly. For the person who is here who has been following you faithfully for a long time, for the person who is here who has um, just recently um, come to faith and come to a belief and a trust in you, and for the person who's here who's um, just checking this whole thing out, uh, got a lot of questions, maybe a lot of skepticism, a lot of experience, and, uh, and what, it, what it might be. God, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us, no matter where we are in our relationship with you or in our pursuit of you, as you always do through your word. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this whole series, um, each week I've talked about it, has revolved around the idea that Jesus addresses an institution and not just an individual. And the significance of that is that when Jesus, again, walked planet Earth, taught miracles, parables, um, sometimes he was incredibly riveting and, and compelling with the things that he would say. And sometimes as Jesus would talk, um, the disciples or the people would walk away and say, <laughs> I have no clue what that means. In fact, if you read the Gospels for yourself, which you should, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, which are the four accounts of Jesus' life, what you'll find is that more often than not, Jesus was a master communicator and a terrible communicator at the same time. I'm telling you, because he would say stuff, and everybody would walk away, and they'd say, I have no clue what that means, right? And then the 12 disciples who were the closest would come up to me and they'd say, hey, Jesus, you know, I think that they were kind of maybe like a little shame in that because they thought like we should know this at this point. And they'd walk up to him and they'd say, what did that mean? <laughs> He'd be like, I'm glad you asked. Or he wouldn't. He would just not explain, but he would just kind of end things by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. But he would speak and talk and work with individuals. Well, church launches, as the church launches and goes forward, Jesus um, has people like Paul and like Peter and like John who would write letters to churches because there's difference in dealing, and you know this, um, with an individual versus an institution. You can deal with individuals and you can deal with institutions. Um, in fact, one of the biggest, and I was just thinking about this, one of the biggest frustrations that happens at work is when you deal with an individual problem at an institutional level. Some of you guys know that. Some of you don't. You just don't realize that's the dynamic that happened. When someone sends a work email and they say, like, going forward, I want to clarify this rule. This is what you ought not do. And the first thing everybody thinks is, who did it, right? Like, who's the one who messed it up so now we all get the big email? But Jesus, in the book of Revelation, speaks to John. John, who is the last remaining disciple. Um, everybody else has been killed. They tried to kill John. They boiled him in this pot of oil, um, didn't die, exiled into this island called Patmos, and it's on the Lord's Day, Jesus is kind of, or John's kind of having his quiet time, having his own individual church service, in the middle of this has this vision, and Jesus says, write this stuff down, I have letters to the churches, and for the very first time, we have Jesus dealing not just with the individual, but with the institution, because when we deal with institutions, there are oftentimes trends that we need to see, acknowledge, encourage, or correct. And so throughout these, Jesus has a mixed bag. Some churches, it's all bad. 
a couple of churches, it's all good. But for the most part, it's a mixed bag of good and bad. And so the church we're talking about today is Philadelphia. And let me tell you why I think the church of Philadelphia is going to be relevant to most of us. Because everybody in here who's a follower of Jesus at some point, at some point follows Jesus in isolation. And here's what I mean by that. It's easy to follow Jesus when we are in a context of people who also follow Jesus. Right? You go on a mission trip, and you're serving, and you're helping, and you're loving. And before everything you do, you circle up and pray. And you're like, I have never held hands with so many strangers in a 24-hour period, right? Like, before you, like, somebody's like, oh, i got to tie my shoes. It's like, oh, circle up, you know? And it's like, man, we're just we're doing this all the time, right? And you're going and in, in, in you're reading and you're praying. And, and there's this sense that a lot of times, whether it's that or maybe it's at a camp that you went to or maybe it's at a community group or with your, with your you know, kind of circle of Christian people, your brothers or sisters in Christ. And when you are in that area or arena or lane, it's really easy to follow Jesus in systems of belief. It's almost like, it's almost like you just kind of continue the momentum that exists. This is what makes, by the way, college difficult. Because for some of us, we were raised in a family that you went to an incredible church, or you went to a church that you were fully engaged in. Maybe you went to a youth group, and as you went to the youth group, you had a community group leader or a small group leader, and they were a little bit older, and they mentored you, and they poured into you, or the youth pastor mentored you and poured into you, and they had this great worship, right, and they had these lights that went crazy. They had, like, straight Scooby-Doo level fog, right, and then all of a sudden the band, like, hit, like, a, like a chord change, and all of a sudden it's, like, this, you know, goosebumps, and it's like, the Holy Spirit, did y'all feel that? It's like, man, the AC kicked on, well-timed programming, right? But, but we can exist in this context where it's like, man, we're following Jesus, following Jesus, following Jesus, and all of a sudden you get to college, and the people around you aren't. And in fact, no one expects you to. This is the difficulty in being a young adult. Because when you graduate from college, what no one tells you is that for your entire life, you have made friends around people where it was easy for you. And the reason it was easy for you is because you went to class in a neighborhood of people who were your, you went to class, first of all, people who were your same age. Because of the fact that you went to school together, most likely you live proximal to one, proximate to one another. In other words, you live close to each other. And so now you have a bunch of people in a very similar place, in a very similar space, at a very similar age, many of which have common interests. In and you sit next to each other for year after year, like first through 12th grade, right? And then you get to the end of that, and all of a sudden you go to college, you reinvest in some new friends, and then you graduate. And you know what happens? You work for the state. In adults, you, you, if you've been in the working world for a while, you kind of look back and you can kind of like laugh at this, right? But, but for the first time, you have to be like cognitively present for 40 hours a week, Right? We're used to being cognitively present for like 40 hours a semester, right? But all of a sudden, like, you have to be engaged the entire time. And not only that, but you're, you know, you leave for work at 730. You get back home from work at 6 o'clock at night. And at the end of that, you've worked with a bunch of people who are not your same age, don't really have that much, much invested or involved in you. Um, <clears throat> they got their own lives, their own friends, their own families. And no one's there like, man, let's just, you know what? we're working at the state, we're working at the Department of Education, let's just have some bro time for a while, right? Or like, girls, let's have some girl time, right? Like, I don't know, we're going to go. Anyways, I'm not going to get on that rabbit trail of scrunchies, which is just my daughter. But anyways, right, like, 
We get to the context of the place where it gets really difficult to follow Jesus because all of a sudden for the first time, um, you used to have all kinds of friends and all kinds of community, and now they're all gone, and no one told you it was coming, and now it's just you and Jesus. And it's difficult. And it's especially difficult, by the way, if you stay in town. This is like a little side note in this sermon. And the reason why it's difficult, all the places are very familiar. All the churches are very familiar But all of the people that you used to go to, all of the places with, are now gone, and you're in a place of incredible familiarity, but yet incredible isolation. And it feels like you're in a vacuum. And whether that place is at work, or whether that place is maybe in your home, you came home for you went home for Thanksgiving, and it felt like you were the only Christian in your family. Isn't this true? When we aren't around other people who know Jesus, it is incredibly difficult to follow. Jesus. Well, this was the context for the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia was a place where there weren't a lot of Christians. Of the seven cities that we are studying, they are not the smallest, but they are the youngest. Philadelphia was actually originally set up as the major thoroughfare through which they would spread um, Greek culture, Hellenization. This was the place where they would go and they would send out people who were artists, educators, um, people who, who knew the linguistics of the Greek culture and of Hellenization, they would just go spread it everywhere. And so this particular place was a place that had great influence, but it had very few Christians. And so Jesus writes this letter knowing that they are in isolation. <clears throat> and my hope is that for all of us, there are areas of life where we feel like we're the only Christian around. And if that's you, you are going to be home or feel home in Philadelphia. So this is what Jesus writes to this particular church. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, which was kind of a, either a leader, pastor, or spiritual entity, some type that was going to be given and, and then written to the rest of the churches. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know everybody's tracking like, oh, I totally get that, right? Like, man, I'm glad you said the whole shut, open, open, shut thing. Man, I'm, you know, let's just pray and then you know the application. What's interesting, he, he describes himself in three ways. Every time he describes himself, he describes himself in a way that's going to be relevant to them. Now, if you are a marginalized church, because they, just weren't, they weren't just small, um, they were small and hated. And so in their context, he's saying, okay, this is a church, this is a group of people. There's a couple things that you're going to need to know. Number one, that I'm holy. Number two, that I'm true. And number three, and this was a, and this is like classic Jesus. It's just this beautiful thing that we would probably not think of that he thinks of. Um, he reaches back to Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, there's this prophecy that prophet Isaiah is, is saying about um, this one particular servant of this one particular king. And he says, and this servant is going to be enthroned. And on the throne, the servant will sit. And he will have the key. And he will be able to shut the door. And when he shuts the door, no one's open. And when he opens the door, no one's going to be able to close it. And Jesus says, I'm that one. And The relevance of that is simply to say this, I'm in control. I'm in control. That I'm the one who sits on the throne, and when I open, no one's closing it. When I close it, no one's opening it. And if you're a church or a Christian, in the context of isolation, you're going to wonder that God is holy, God is true, and God is in 
control. And we're going to talk about the specifics of why that's going to be relevant in a minute. But going on, verse 8, he says, I know your works. I know your works. I love that, and I hate that at the same time, for being honest. Anybody like, you don't have to raise your hand. But like, every week, Jesus has opened by saying, I know. I know your works. There are times with my kids when I say, I know what you did, and it's a terrifying thing, right? Like, you come home and they've just been acting like, I don't know, like they sit on Satan's throne, right? Like, you, you go home and, they, and they've just been like crazy and they've been nuts, and you're just like, man, I know what you did. They're like, what did I do? I'm like, I can see the house. It's a wreck. It's a mess. Like, someone destroyed this place. I know what you did. And there's other times where, like, you hear a good report maybe from a babysitter or somebody else, and it's like they did really well, and you're like, oh, man, I heard about what you did. What's interesting is I read this, and sometimes when Jesus says, I know your works, it's like I know your works and that you're terrible, right? And sometimes he says, I know your works and you're great. What I think about this is I'm thinking, man, how I interpret Jesus saying, I know, is probably indicative of what's happening in my heart, right? So when if you were to think, God knows what you've done, is that like a sense of joy that your father is joyful and joyous over seeing the great work and the ways that you've glorified him? Or is that something where I'm like, could you know a little bit less which is me sometimes, a lot of the times, to be honest. But I'm trying to get in that other thing constantly. So he says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, which goes back to the whole door thing. Um, now, <clears throat> when he says this, there's a couple of ways that there, people will interpret this, scholars will interpret this. One version or interpretation of this is when he says, I know um, and I have, there, there, there's an open door. There's an open door that I have um, set before you an open door. Some people will say that open door is an open door of evangelism. That in this place and the space where there is a sense that you are like Philadelphia, not a lot of Christians, a lot of people who don't know Jesus, big place of influence, a lot of external factors coming into play, um, that there is a door that can be opened to help people to come to know Jesus. A lot of times Paul would say this, pray for us that a door might be open to us. There's also a sense that a door open meant a door open, that they had access to God because they knew Jesus, because they knew God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you have listened, you have obeyed, you've done a great job. And so there's a door, there's a special sense of intimacy and connection between us. And so is it the sense of, of access to God, or is it a sense of evangelism to those that don't know God? And the answer is probably both. We don't know exactly which Jesus had in mind, but I think both can be true. So he says this, there's an open door that you have. No one's going to be able to shut it. He says this, and I know that you have but little power. I know that you have but little power. The um, Greek in that but little power phrase was a sense of influence or power that originated from a sense of numerical significance. In other words, he says, I know that you as a church don't have a lot of power because you don't have a lot of people. I know that you as a church don't have a lot of power because you don't have a lot of people. He says, yet, and yet you have kept my word 
and have not denied my name. Now, let me tell you why that, I think, is, is really special and significant, especially the word yet right there. Yet. Yet is a contrasting word. Yet can either be a continuation or yet can be a contrast. Continuation, I haven't learned how to snowboard yet, nor do I plan to because I'm almost 40 and I'll probably blow out my knees, right? But like yet in that sense, or like we haven't beat the Gators yet, right? But we'll get them next year. Prayers requested, right? <clears throat> kind of a continuation. Anyways, what he does here is he says, hey, there's a, there is a contrast between the ability to follow God because there is a significant amount of people and people who follow God without. If you were to reverse engineer this thought, you could say it this way. If what Jesus says is that I know you have kept or you have but little power and yet you have kept my word, what that means is, is that when we don't have a lot of people, it can be very difficult to follow. And we've seen that, right? This is why it's so much easier to follow God when you're around people who also follow God. But the opposite is true. It's very difficult to follow God when you're around people who don't. It's kind of like, in some senses, it's easy to maintain belief in the context of people who are maintaining that same belief. It's like riding a bike down a hill. Like, you don't even have to pedal. You just go. And this is what I think throws us as Christians all the time. And this is why I think this is actually really important. Because some of the most important places and spaces that God has us, there's no other Christians around. Some of the places where it's most important for us to follow Jesus is the place where there's the least Jesus followers. When we go into those places, man, it can be difficult because everybody else is doing stuff, right? And it's and not even like, oh, everybody's, you know, you know, chanting or anything like that, and perhaps, but it's, it's more like a, man, everybody begins to talk bad about people and gossip about the people at work, and no one actually talks to anybody, but everybody talks about somebody, right? And as Christians, it's so easy to give into that and say, you know what, I could actually go to this person in love and say, man, some people are saying some stuff, and I don't really like it, I don't really appreciate it, but I just need to talk to you because I love you and I care about you, and I'm not even going to accuse you, I'm just going to ask you, is this true? Leading with questions, not assumptions. But it's easier to do what everybody else does. This is why, for many of us, we wouldn't really say it this way, but we will follow God because other people follow God, not because we actually follow God. If you think about it, the core of what, the, what it is, that's what that means. If my obedience to God is contingent on the people around me being obedient to God. I'm not following God. I'm following a crowd. This is why him opening by saying, I am holy, I am true, I am in control. It's like he's saying, hey, the reason that you follow me, the beautiful thing about the reason that you follow me is you don't follow me because it's easy to follow me. You follow me because you think I'm holy. You follow me because you think I'm true. And you follow me because you think I'm in control. Because if he's holy, true, and in control, we follow him no matter what. So he looks at this group of people and says, man, I know it can be incredibly difficult to follow. In areas, I know it can be incredibly difficult to be obedient in areas where there aren't very many Christians. But what if, what if the entire purpose of God putting us in those places and spaces is so we could actually learn to follow him and not learn to follow other people following him? What if the reason that we were in that place and space wasn't just so that we would simply exist, but so that we could be a light? 
What if there was more purpose beyond what we actually acknowledge in our own kind of myopic view of existence? So he says, yet, yet, you have kept my word. And you have not denied my name. So let me ask you this. In the areas where nobody knows, how difficult is obedience? How present is obedience? In the areas where you're the only Christian around, how's your obedience? This is why as Christians we'll follow Jesus in the big things. Like, I'll show up to church continually because people expect me to show up at church. But secretly, I don't spend reading my Bible. Secretly, I don't pray. Secretly, I don't give. Well, that's because everybody sees when I show up. But they don't see what's done in private. So Jesus looks at him and says, to the church of Philadelphia, you've done a great job. And I wonder if he would say that to us. I think there's some of us, some of you, that he would. Some of you that, man, you just knocked this out of the park. People will be drawn to God because of the way that you live your life when, you, when it seems like no one's looking or it seems like it doesn't matter and it seems like it's, a, it's an obscurity. And you just have this sense that you can live that out. And the beautiful thing is that connects to the previous. Because when you live that out, isn't this true? When you live that out in places where it's difficult, where it's contrasting, where it's kind of countercultural, where you serve when no one else serves, when you love when no one else loves, when you're honest when no one else is honest, when you actually work at things as if working for the Lord, when it seems like everybody else just works as if it only matters for a paycheck, like you actually put your heart, your soul, your life, and your passion into something that maybe you're not even passionate about because God said to do all things as if you're doing it for him. And so you do all things as if you're doing it for him. And all of a sudden, in this context, conversations open up because they notice and they see that you're different. They notice and they see that you love whether or not you agree. They notice and they see that you serve whether or not you agree. They notice and they see a difference. And also there's this connection to God. He says there's a door that's open. He reiterates in the next verse. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, this was the context. that There was a bunch of people who were in the religious community that said they followed God, but they had no clue, and they denied Jesus. They denied God. They denied him with their life. He says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And this is the beautiful thing. And this is the thing that honestly is difficult for us. Because what he's saying here is in case you're worried because you feel like the place where you work, the place where you live, the family that you exist in, the fraternity that you're in, the sorority that you're in, the team that you're on, the roommate situation that you have, in case you feel like the problem is is you're just spinning your wheels because there's no real sense of efficacy, there's no real sense of productivity, then what you need to know is eventually this all comes down to God and that God is going to be the one who judges. He says, and I just need you to know that I'm in control as this whole thing's fallen out. He says, because, verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
says, man, as you're living this out, as you're living out in the difficult places and the spaces, I'm going to keep you from some of the trials that are on the earth. And here's what we know. This could be an eschatological statement that as he's talking about, he's talking about end time stuff. 100% possible. But he could also be talking about a timely trial. And this doesn't always mean that God's going to keep us from trials, but that he will keep us and give us a peace in those trials, right? The scriptures clearly say anyone who wants to follow Jesus, um, who wants to live a godly life and follow in Christ Jesus will face persecution of many kinds. But he also says, let the peace of the Lord rule in your heart. He also says in Philippians that if we submit our prayers and our requests to God, then the peace of the Lord will guard our heart and mind. The peace of the Lord which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and mind. In other words, sometimes we're not kept completely from the storm bodily, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, we are at a place of peace. You want to know what's crazy? You want to know what the early church actually experienced? The spread of Christianity? One of the most magnetic things was as Christians faced imminent death, they had peace. There was a faith so strong, it could look a lion in the face and not flinch. There was a faith so strong that it had a peace that this might hurt, but this hurt is not the end. That there is going to come eternity that is much longer. An eternity where there is no pain and suffering. So he looks at him and he says, don't think that this life is all there is to life. He says, I'm coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is, this is interesting where he's going with this because there, actual in Philadelphia, there was a ton of earthquakes, a ton of earthquakes that existed in this place. Um, and oftentimes when the earthquakes you know, happened and stuff fell down and all that stuff, the pillars were the only ones that were standing. So he says, man, I'm going to make you a pillar. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. There's so much we could say about that sentence, by the way, that statement that just like what that means, new Jerusalem coming down, all that kind of stuff. And I just want to say this. Um, starting in the fall, our spring, um, there's going to be the Varan's Discipleship. You should go to that because they go crazy on Revelation. It's awesome. So join that. They're going to talk about new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. Shout out to all my, Re my Revelation uh, Discipleship people. Thank you. Malachi is hyped about that. The Varans are there. They didn't say anything. Cool, guys. Anyway, just kidding. But here's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's kind of what I feel like as he's saying this. He doesn't call them to repentance because they're doing a good job of it, but I feel like, feel like he should call us to repentance. Because the reality is, is I think that for us, again, it's so easy. It's so easy because many of us, we started in a Christian setting or a Christian context. I mean, it was just like it was just like going downhill, but then we hit this rough patch, right? And as we hit this rough patch, it's just everything slowed down. We started to question everything, wonder everything. Some of us even deconstruct everything not even realizing that that place that, that we were in had a particular purpose in our life. Um, we were in Thanksgiving in Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee. And it was, um, it was a terrible drive up. It was awful. It was like 10 hours, and it was the worst. It was seven and a half hours back because, you know, we left early. It's really all it was. Well, we're there, and um, 
Lindsay's mom got a new place, and it's kind of on like one of the side lots. And the kids, as they're growing up, they still have some toys that are there. And one of them is this like little little tyke car. It's not like the red one little tyke car, but it's like a blue one top off, and it's got this little you know handle behind it, so you can kind of push it and pull it around and all this kind of stuff. Um, well, as the kids grow up, obviously you find ways to repurpose those things. Um, and we decided um, there's a gigantic hill behind uh, her mom's house. We, Call it somebody else's backyard. But there's this big hill nonetheless. So obviously, like, we're there for a couple days. Don't have really anything to do. So we're like, we're about to have some fun on this hill. So day one, Rose and I, were playing outside. We're having fun. And, and um, we're playing golf on the hill. Really, I'm his caddy because this ball gets lost all the time. And next day, um, I think Lindsay had this idea. And so she gets this little car and starts to pull it up the hill and starts to let Rose go down it. And so he gets a little bit more courage and goes down it again a little faster and a little faster and a little faster. And by the time that we're, like, pretty far into it, like, that dude is flying, and everybody's legs are tired from walking this little tykes thing up the hill, right? And so as he's going down faster and faster, at some point as a parent, like, it's exhilarating and also, like, Maybe we should be cautious, but, you know, we'll see what happens. So I actually have a video, um, a couple of videos of roads flying down the hill. I'm going to tell you why this is important in a second. But um, people who are wherever in the tech space, um, can you play that first video, the tall one of my man Rhodes coming down the hill in Knoxville, Tennessee? Three, here we go. You can't really see him that well. See that little blip? Here we go. He almost takes Lindsay. <laughs> My dude. All right, now play this other one, but don't like like cue it up, but let them see like the the image of it first, because you can see um, how how steep this thing is. Because you know how it is as a parent, like sometimes like you like let your kids go down stuff, and at some point you're like, this is irresponsible. This you know, but you're like, but we should try it, right? <clears throat> the Bible says to be brave, be strong and courageous, and fly down hills. So um, here is the second uh, video of this set. Y'all see it now, right? It's set. Go! <laughs> <laughs> he is flying. <laughs> that's the same laugh I just did. That's awesome. That, by the way, so none of that's our property. That little one on the right, that's our property. All right, so trespassing, Jesus forgives. Now, here's the point of that, right? So as he's flying down this thing, and as he was going, he's going, he hits this little green patch, and all of a sudden where the grass gets a little bit taller, and it slows him down every time. And here's what I was thinking as I was thinking about this sermon. I was just thinking, man, I feel like for many of us, for many of us, we're like roads, and we're flying down the hill, and as a Christian, you're in the context, and you're in community, and you're in a group, and you're in all this kind of stuff. But at some point in life, you hit that, that, law, that tall grass where all of a sudden, all of that momentum comes to a screeching halt, and we don't know what to do. And here's my point. What if, what if the purpose of that, what if the purpose of that rough patch that we hit as we're flying, as we're carrying this spiritual momentum as believers, what if we go into that rough patch, the point of us in that rough patch or the tall grass is that we would actually blaze a trail through it and not be stopped by it? What if that's where the engine kicked in? What if that was the whole point of the momentum as we were flying down the hill that we would actually have what we need to carry us through that place, through that season, through that area of life where it became incredibly difficult to follow? Like, what if that was the point? In fact, what if the point, again, was for us to realize that for the first time we need to follow God for ourselves, not because other people follow God? 
What if the point was that for the first time, we need to follow God in a place where nobody else is following God? Because perhaps that's the most important place because that's where people need to see somebody following God. And we know, inevitably, that we're sinful. We know that in our obedience, our obedience doesn't earn us salvation. But the confines of the gospel is that we can never be perfect. We can never be perfect. We can never earn our way into God's good graces. That God knew that, saw that, understood that, did not expect that. But what God did is he sent his son Jesus so that when we live for God, because the truth is, is as long as I try to moral my way into God's good graces, I'm not actually living for God. I'm living for my own salvation through God. I don't actually love God. I just love what God can bring to me if I'm good enough. And so let me be good enough so that I can make my team. I hope my kids don't listen to me because they have to, because if they don't, they're afraid they're not going to be my kids anymore. It's not true. They'll always be my kids. I hope they listen to me because they love me, they respect me, and they trust me as their father. And what if... What if the purpose in those difficult places was that we would follow God when it's difficult, when we live in isolation, because we actually trust our Father? What if it was because we actually believe He's holy? What if it was because we actually believe He's true? And what if we believe it's because He's actually in control? And so no matter the place and no matter the space, we actually just followed God. And what if For you, if you're here and you are skeptical about Christianity, skeptical about faith, skeptical about Jesus, what if you saw a Christian do this, live this, but in a way that looked like Jesus, in a way that they served when no one else was serving, in a way that they loved when no one else was loving, in a way that no matter how much you disagreed, this person constantly put you first constantly loved you, constantly sacrificed for you, and not because they had to, but because they realized that's what Jesus did for me. He loved me. He served me. He gave his life for me, not because I was servable, lovable, or in any way, shape, or form God could or should sacrifice for me, but the opposite. Because of the fact that he shouldn't, he did, which displayed his love. If you're skeptical about Christianity, what if that was the reputation of the church? Not a hypocritical, judgmental. You guys talk about it on Sunday, but I've seen you in your cubicle on Monday, and and that's nothing like it. What if it was the opposite? Come on. Isn't that what we want to be anyway? People who actually follow God, not follow a crowd following God? People who actually believe he's holy, he's true, and he's in control. Because if he's holy, and he's true, and he's in control, we will do anything he says, whenever he says, wherever he says. So here's the simple question this morning. How is your obedience in areas of spiritual isolation? How is your obedience when no one's looking? How is your obedience when you're the only Christian in the context? Because Jesus saw this church, and they were doing it. And they were living it in such a way. He says, man, the one thing I want you to do, don't let anybody take that from you. Don't let anybody stop you. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up.
And if you're ever concerned that it's all for nothing, there's going to come a day when everyone will realize. So what's the area of disobedience? What's the area of repentance? And what does it look like for you and for me to decide? I was going in that direction, and I hit the tall grass, and it stopped me. But I've realized that God has called me to blaze a trail through that. If we're looking back at that, that first picture or that second picture, man, I'm just imagining that where the grass kind of meets the other grass and the two yards meet, and all of a sudden there would just be these trail after trail after trail after trail of little trikes, right, that were Christians that just kind of went and made roads. And as we did that, man, we just influenced our families. First, it influenced our hearts into our families, into our community, into our city. What if that was the reputation of the church? What if we were Philadelphia? My guess is there would be a whole lot more doors open for us as Christians. And my guess is there would be a whole lot more doors that you would open if you're skeptical of Christians. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to see the areas where we're more obedient to the influence of others than we are to the understanding that you are true, you are holy, and you are in control. God, would you give us the wisdom to see those places and the courage to repent? knowing that it's not by our behavior that we earn salvation, but because we have salvation, we freely live for you, God. We freely live like you, God. A God who so loved, he gave. A God who so loved, he served. Not because we deserved or we had acted in any type of a way that's honorable to receive a gift. God, would you help us to be that? Would you help us to embody that? And in the places and spaces of spiritual isolation, would you give us the ability to realize that perhaps that place is there for a reason, that we are there to be a light, and that you are refining inside of us the ability to follow you, not because of everyone else, but because we actually follow you, because we trust you, because we believe you, and we get a relationship with you. God, would you give us the wisdom to see areas of compromise? Because there are places of areas of influence by other people. Areas of compromise where we haven't followed you because we're the only Christian around. And would you give us the wisdom and the courage to follow you to be obedient to you where we feel perhaps powerless but attached to you the powerful almighty God we have every ability to turn that little trike into the most souped up Wakulla type four wheeler in the history of humanity and that we will just blaze trails and people will see you through us, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.